Kyle Thompson. This is Esri. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this time we are back again with Computer Power and Human Reason by Joseph Weizenbaum. Um, this time we're reading chapters two, three, and four, um, which two and three are kind of semi-interesting, but like it's mostly uh, Weizenbaum explaining how computers work to um, an audience from the 1970s. Um, he has some middlingly interesting points in there, so we're not going to do a like in-depth kind of reading of those chapters but um chapter four is i found to be incendiary and 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 interesting yeah um yeah i think we might as well just jump into it yes uh, yeah let's do it uh yeah can you imagine a computer comes from an introduction to computer science that just punches you in the guts for being really interested in computers you fascist There's a disdain that runs through this that I found interesting, you know? Like, he, he is explaining the nuts and bolts. This is the kind of stuff you'd get in a 101 kind of lecture series or something. But mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. kind of... It's it's dripping with contempt, <laughs> which is really interesting. Yeah. Yes. Like, at once, I think we were recognizing that what he's saying is definitely a thing. And then, on the other hand, like, it does provide ammunition for a certain, like, you know that this is some kind of, you know, it's computer science, not hate argument for robots in the future. Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, chapter two, where the power of the computer comes from, um, kind of starts out with, uh, just like, I guess, building up a concept of like, what are machines? Like what's, what's interesting about machines? It's the regularity and the, uh, the complexity and the regularity of the machine. That's interesting. He kind of goes through then like, um, the kind of, I guess, historical development of machines as things that transfer power to machines as things that process information, Um, miniaturization and kind of uh, computization of processes, which is all pretty interesting. But like the the point he kind of lays out very clearly initially is that machines operating correctly, um, what's the quote here? Machines, when they operate properly, are not merely law abiding, they are embodiments of law. Right. So that like when we say a machine is operating properly, it is an embodiment of a certain law, a certain formal system um, that it is supposed to be um, supposed to be enacting. Right. And it's, it's against that that you can say that the machine is malfunctioning or not. So I don't know. A, an engine driving a shaft, a rotating shaft or whatever, you can kind of you can see the sort of law that it's supposed to be in. Um, embodying and then if it stops or if the shaft breaks or something like that you can say it's malfunctioning and the same goes for the computer right that if the the circuits of the computer are an embodiment of arithmetic and if they fuck up they're they're deviant right they're they're an incorrect implementation of the law but there's there is at the heart of it all a kind of concept of an a kind of iron law that is embodied in the machine one way or the other yeah, and uh, there's an interesting point where he says that um, he says um, this stretching of the connotative range of the word machine has two quite separable significances. 
First, it testifies that the folk wisdom recognizes the essential characteristic of the machine to be its relentless regularity, its blind obedience to of the law of which it is an embodiment. And that regularity, as the folk wisdom perceives correctly too, has little to do with material motion. This is the insight which permits people to talk of, say, a bureaucracy or a system of justice as a machine. Second, it, it reveals an implicit, though very vague, understanding in the folk wisdom of the idea that one aspect of mechanism has to do with information transfer and not with the transmission of material power. The arrival of all sorts of electronic machines, especially of the electronic computer, has changed our image of the machine from that of a transducer and transmitter of power to that of a transformer of information. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's quite interesting that we have this idea of like, OK, we can build machines according to uh, laws that we uh, gain some awareness of, um, expect them to perform with regularity, but then also um, we can draw like a conceptual analogy to social systems from machines, right? And, and, and then finally, we get the level where the machine is an information processor. And so that kind of metaphor becomes very like physically instantiated as an actual machine and not just a uh, metaphorical one. Oh, it's like a short rediscovery of like cybernetic principle in the course of his argument mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um i think he uses some examples here of like you know in, in a simple engine you might have um you know a, a, a shaft that rotates and then it, it like opens a valve or something but then in a more advanced engine you kind of replace it with an electrical system that does the same thing it opens the valve and it's transmitting information rather than transmitting power or if I remember correctly, there's the example of like, I guess like, um, you know, in a primitive automobile, you'd, you'd actually turn the steering wheel and it turns the parts of the car. But like, I think these days it's all like electrically assisted steering or whatever. So you, you turn the wheel and it, it does computer shit, which then sends signals to the parts of the car to turn, you know? So it's the, he's just kind of getting, he's kind of abstracting away from like physical motion into information processing as the kind of heart and soul of the machine. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and 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 of course, the engine is still a transmitter of power, uh, but we start to increasingly think of it as embedded in an informational system to a de to a degree that like has become quite absurd at this point, right? Like that, you know, everything is so tied into um like information communication technologies uh that link into even something as simple as like a engine or a light switch in your house right like everything becomes embedded into the larger informational machine right because it, it's it's easier to um it's easier to i think it's easier to build larger and larger machines when they are just information systems because like um you know, uh, tra transmitting actual physical power is quite difficult. Like, you know, you, you can't have like a 30 mile long rotating steel shaft or something like moving power across distance, but you can have electrical signals, you know, <laughs> do that pretty trivially. Yeah, well, that, that's the thing is where like we think about 
information transmission is somehow not being physical, even though it's like a massive electrical system and often mechanical system. So it's like there's a weird slippage that happens where we start to think of these systems as primarily like ideal and less and less physical. Right. And that's obviously a thing that like, you know, uh, greenwashing by tech companies and stuff takes advantage of. Uh, I think I saw, I was watching the show Pantheon, um, which was a like American animated show about uploading consciousness to computers and like the ultimate justification that this this person gives, who's like behind the whole thing, is like. Oh, like our material needs are so extensive as modern humans. The only way that we can escape resource limitations is to become digital consciousnesses who live in like a realm of ideal freedom. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, but you're like leaving out the whole part where this stuff is actually incredibly energy and resource intensive. <laughs> yeah. Like it would be, it'd be like in, um, you know, in like mass effect, they have like the AI species of get or whatever the fuck they're called, you know? And it's like, yeah, imagine, imagine being a mind in this kind of ideal realm. And then you have to get into a robot body to go out and mine minerals to feed back into your civilization or whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> to keep, to keep <laughs> building bodies or whatever the fuck. Um, you know, oh, Jesus yeah. Christ. People lose sight of that very quickly, right? That there is a it's a material substrate, which is actually really interesting because that's the kind of stuff that Weissenbaum is going to get into. Like, yes, that yeah. On the one hand, this is an informational monist kind of system, or uh, uh, you can look at it in those kind of monistic terms of like it's it's all just material. Like, um, information is patterns among matter. But then he does talk about like how there are kind of like abstract aspects of the machine that like. Um, you know, you could specify a machine that, like, is... And the specification is... The function of the machine is kind of independent of its instantiation. It does depend on being instantiated. But, like, um, he uses the example of, like, a design for a sewing machine. Um, like, the design for the machine itself is kind of independent of the particular construction of a given instance of it. You could make it out of wood. You could make it out of steel in any combination you want. And it still is a sewing machine. Um, so there is something bizarre happening there. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we well, can that's, like... that's what he means by embodiments of law, right? Is that there, there's something about a machine that implies its own abstract entity. And, and, you know, he goes on to talk about machines, you know, that can't actually be instantiated, but, you know, they exist in this abstract way, but it's, it's part yeah. of it because of the, because of the lawfulness that it presupposes. I don't know if we've read this on air, but this is a good one. We expect an ordinary desk calculator, for example, to be an embodiment of the laws of arithmetic we all know. Should it deliver what we believe to be a wrong result, our faith in the lawfulness of the machine is so strong that we usually assume that we made an error in punching in the data. Sorry. Punching in our, our data. It is only when it repeatedly malfunctions that we decide that there is something wrong with the machine, quote unquote. We never believe that the laws of arithmetic have been repealed or amended, but neither do we ever believe that the machine is behaving capriciously in an unlawful manner. No, in order to restore it to its proper function, we seek to understand why it behaves as it now does, of what law it is now an embodiment. We are pleased when we find, say, a broken gear that accounts for its aberrant behavior. We have then discovered its law. Like, Yeah. Well, and yeah. this is like one reason why 
uh, I think we're so fascinated with like um, language learning models is because they do behave capriciously. And also we we can't provide an account of why they don't work. Um, so like you can't come up with the lawful explanation for why it didn't work because you can't even get into the guts of a black box. Right. And yeah, it's and, too and, and, and yeah, yeah. And so it breaks these assumptions we have about what it is to be machinic um, and therefore uh, is just kind of like perplexing and fascinating to us. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, moving on to like page 44 or so, um, he kind of moves on to like, uh, again, into this abstraction like that. Um, these abstract machines and specifications, you know, kind of live in the same realm of like this kind of, like you, you could kind of specify anything. Like it's, it's a, it's an infinite field of games that we can play an infinite set of rules that we could possibly imagine. Now there's, if you're talking about like physically building, you know, sewing machines and shit like that, you are kind of constrained by what can be constructed. But in the realm of the computer, you know, you kind of have this or in, in the realm of like, formal systems and rule sets and stuff like that you can kind of go nuts if you want right like go completely off the rails yeah you you can you're only constrained by what can be articulated and simulated right like it's like you know a machine you built like there's the joke about like oh well this rocket i designed worked in kerbal space program so it must work in reality right well of course not <laughs> because it's a very simplified physical model and you can't expect it to work in the real world, but it will work in Kerbal Space Program, right? It's the, the according to the laws of that simulation, it's 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 perfectly fine. Um, and and, you know, these are different things. Right. Uh, and, you know, maybe your computer isn't fast enough to run the program. And so you can't do the simulation. But assuming you have the capacity to simulate, assuming you have the capacity to articulate, you can do it. In, in the virtual, right? They, he's talking about the virtual is, is what, he, what he's describing uh, is, is, you know, it's something that predates computers uh, because obviously the virtual always mm. existed as long as we had like imagination and language. But um, uh, it becomes something that's like very, very commonplace with with computer simulation. He's talking about purely abstract games and purely abstract rule sets that have no contact with the real world, that they're not dependent on the real world. One of the examples he uses is the game of chess. Um, you might play chess with wooden pieces or ivory pieces, but it doesn't really matter. The game of chess is purely abstract. You can play it in your mind, you can play it on paper. It doesn't really matter what way it's instantiated. It is a consistent and coherent thing in itself, an, an abstract machine, an abstract game. Um, and the, he points out a very interesting thing that like the, the rules require, they're just pure calculation and there's no judgment, right? When you ask, when you ask if like a, a, a move is valid in chess, no judgment is involved. It is purely a matter of calculation of whether this is a valid move or not. There's no subjective or aesthetic concern or anything like that gets mixed into it. It is a purely mechanical system all of its own. Chess players will refer to a valid, like the, the best strategy as correct, as a correct response. A lawful move, you know? Yeah. And they have a, you know, a quasi-logical, like, you know, 
or para paralogical, I suppose, like notation. Like this, ma they have like mathematical chess notation. They have an algebra or something, you know? Yeah, it's 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 like yeah, it's a very right. elaborate. Like it's an unsolved game, but it, it has very elaborate game like proto game theory built into the culture of chess. It's like a really interesting cultural development. As, yeah, as that they I have mean, this level of theory about it. This this was really interesting to me as a game designer because um, tabletop role playing games are both abstract and also do not behave like this. Um, they involve a lot of judgment but they're still just as abstract as chess. Um, so it's just a different, it's a different kind of game. Um, you know, the more freedom you introduce into the game, the more judgment gets involved, right? Well, I guess for the chess thing, it's like the, the judgment of the players is involved. But um, I think specifically he's, he's talking about like the, there's no judgment in interpreting the rules, I guess, which which is not true of, say, Dungeons, Dungeons and Dragons or whatever, where, like, the, the game master does get to interpret the rules and gets to exercise judgment on things. Well, there's also just, like, aesthetic judgments, right? Like, like oh, should I take the story in this direction? Does that conform to the principles of the game? Blah, blah, blah. Like, you know... It, it, is this fun? Even, even in sports, when you talk about where something is sportsmanlike or not... Right. Like that, that's something that you can have in abstract games um, as well as, you know, uh, physical sports. Absolutely. Um, but the thing that Weizenbaum is interested in here is this this property of there being no judgment in the interpretation and application of the rules. Um, this means that to ask if a move in chess or a configuration is valid is really to ask if it can be reached if it's a if it's a configuration that can be reached by application of valid rules starting from um, the initial board state, so like can you concoct the sequence of moves that would lead there, and that would that would then exclude a, a space of board configurations that are unreachable and therefore invalid and so on. So this brings us to the concept of like the state of the game and state transitions as being the things that make up this abstract machine. So you have you have the current state, and then you have all possible transitions, and then the branching tree of all possible moves through all possible states is is the totality of the game. I I, I think there's a a very famous piece of like Japanese fiction from like the mid 20th century that is about um I think it's about Go and uh it, um, the story is essentially about, um, you know, instrumental versus substantive reason in a sense, or even like the, the, the humanity of playing one of these games as a means of communication between two people versus uh, playing the game as a uh, abstract game made up of state transition rules. And like the sort of like the violation of humanity that is implied in modernity um uh through playing the game in a way that like breaks the mm. common human understanding uh i wish i could remember the name of the of the story but um is this definitely has to do with this issue yeah totally um if you can find us we'll put it in the show notes that'd be great yeah yeah yeah, yeah for yeah, sure but um the the Weizenbaum kind of moves on. He, he does kind of uh, admit this difference between permissive and deterministic games, right? Like that. Um, 
there are some games that are really just procedures, you know, and he, he kind of goes through where, where, like, the result is static, like, it is deterministic, but it is unknown at the start, you know, so he has this illustration of, like, a game played with ashtray, an ashtray and some marbles or whatever the fuck, and it's it's actually a way of figuring out what time it is or something, but, you know, it's it's an exceedingly boring game because, you know, there's there's no actual play, it's just application of rules from one, one state to the next, um, whereas, you know, chess, chess has more creativity going on. This is a thing that comes up a lot in game studies, right, is that play is something that is not identical to gameplay. It, it, it's something that exists in a broader sense than games. Um, and and there's like, you know, whole long books written about the distinction between these two things. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you kind of we're kind of breezing past a fair bit of stuff here, but it, it is quite wordy. It's just like and it, it is interesting to read. It's just not so it's not so chewy to talk about. But he, he moves. Well, yeah, for instance, time, time in chess is technically an, uh, something that, you know, departs from abstraction and like this abstract notion of game, because time is, of course, as we covered last time, a reference to uh, solar like pl planets moving around like stars and shit. <laughs> um, so that's not abstract enough um, for what he's talking about. <laughs> Yeah, right. Like the, the formal definition of chess doesn't have a time component, but like the actual playing of it does. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there's there's a game time you can have in chess if you don't play on a clock where the the game timeline is made up of discrete moments and they exist independent of of uh, lived time or clock time. Right. They mm -hmm. just they just happen according to like a series of go, numbers. Baby. Yeah, it's yeah. Um, I guess he kind of he moves on to like definition of like algorithm as effective procedure, like that if you have this kind of way of fully defining the states and the transitions, you have an effective procedure. Therefore, you have an algorithm, and this is the kind of thing he's going to be. He's, he's just he's doing CompSci one hundred and one sort of stuff, but it, it is it is good stuff if you're not familiar with it. Um, a lot of the, there's an interesting page then on page forty seven of like about the agent that's carrying out the procedure, right? That like, there's always this um, assumed agent, like when you when you specify procedure, there's an assumed agent that's gonna be carrying it out. And the, the degree of the effectiveness of the specification really depends on the agent, right? So that like, he's kind of talking about like, you know, um, a cookery school or whatever. And it's like, it trains students to a high standard to be able to perform these procedures, to be able to follow recipes. But the recipes don't really make sense to people who aren't trained, you know what I mean? Like, so when you are, when you give the recipe to a trained cook, it is an effective procedure. But if you give it to someone like me, it's not, you know, that the, the specification of the algorithm is in, in always in reference to an agent, whether the agent is human being or, you know, um, an ARM processor or whatever. There's always like something else that you're talking to that you're saying, pick up this, do this, move it here, move it there. You're kind of relying on the agent to be able to interpret the instructions correctly. Yeah, like you have some understanding of like a processor's instruction set, like their fundamental instruction set and how to interface with that, right? Which I guess is always this interesting thing when people get really hung up on like algorithm as this highly powerful sort of thing. And it's like, well, where's the agent that's carrying out the algorithm, right? You know, and it's how powerful is that agent? You know, is is, is it is it an ARM processor with the, with this wonderful instruction set and, you know, whatever, or is or is it is it a potato? Or are we talking about a professional chef or just some, some dollard, you know, like... Oh, the 
the the algorithm at best is referring to like the entire institutional like incentive structure of a particular platform that is you yeah. know that's there's there's a defined function for it that's not how it is used in common life where you know it might as well just be the jews <laughs> yeah algorithm algorithm in the the twitter sense here yes um and the the social media sense yeah yeah so you know just as a as an algorithm veteran myself mm-hmm. yeah yeah we've all been through the algorithm wars you know um yeah <laughs> yeah information is more real than flesh i mean it's, it's sounds like the butlerian jihad from dune you know? right oh yes we all remember the algorithm wars yes exactly um, um <laughs> well like so there's, there's something outlines here that like when and that that's what this is what would stimulate a butlerian jihad right that like when 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 we have this impulse to specify effective procedures, there is an impulse to specify and make the language precise so that it admits no variation in its application, right? That, like, the application of the procedure would be always and unambiguously result in exactly the same outputs, regardless of the agent carrying it out. And so it erases human variety, right? Like, you kind of... Uh, you know, a set of rules for baking a cake that specified absolutely everything down to the last micron would, it would it, you, you wouldn't even need a human agent to carry it out. So why bother with a human cook anymore? Just have a machine 3D print the fucking cake at that point, you know? Um, yeah, it's how you get, like, highly processed food, right? Um, and, uh, the, you know, it, it, it follows with the logic that, like, uh, the more abstract and law-like the algorithm is, the less judgment is involved. Yeah, that's it. Um, but there's a tension then with, like, how we don't have unambiguous language. Like, uh, you know, well, largely, like, in, in, in the realm of natural language, we don't have unambiguous language. We, we're always kind of frustrated in this effort. Um, and we find that we can't nail things down precisely, but we do have formal languages, which are like games. And we're, we're back to the games thing, right? We, we kind of, we, if we have this driving desire to ultra specify a procedure, we're like, shit, you know, English just isn't going to fucking do it. We need, we need a formal language. We need something that resembles a game with unambiguous procedures, like unambiguous phase transitions, like in chess. That's how you get here. Yeah, I'm. I'm yeah. trying to think to myself: Do we are we all, all on board with these types of things being languages? Because you know, in my more naive state, before like getting into what other people thought about this, I would say to myself: Well, people say math is a language, but is it really? Like, it doesn't have the vagueness of language. Like, like isn't isn't the vagueness central to what makes language language? Like. I basically agree, like, in, in that sense, but, like, the, the horse is bolted on this, I guess, for the colloquial understanding. Yeah, 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 no, a hundred percent. Yeah, I'm just, like, it's just, uh, I was surprised to yeah. see people making this argument while still call, while still giving up this rhetorical point. Listen, it's, okay, language, sure, uh, formal language, fine. There's this thing, like, where um, I, like, I, I spent a good while, a couple of years ago, like, studying parsers, like, you know, how to, how to parse programming languages, how to parse data structures and stuff, um... And the thing with parsers is, like, you very quickly run into, like, Noam Chomsky's work on, like, computational linguistics and stuff like that. And the funny thing is that, like, he set out to try to figure things out about natural language, but his work ended up being much, much more useful in computer science, and it basically didn't touch natural language at all, really. But then 
everyone who teaches you parsing will say, oh, blah, 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 let's write a parser for this language. And then they'll say, also, by the way, these aren't really languages. Like, it's, it's a, language is just a weird borrowed word that we have that we, we borrow from the concept of natural language. But, like, JavaScript isn't a fucking language, in quotes, in that sense, you know? So there is, um, at least I've found in the CompSci world, there is a sort of sort of ambient understanding that the, the word language is stretched here. It's stretched. I mean, I think the thing is that when we speak about formal language, it makes me think about um, essentially what he was referring back to earlier, uh, the idea of like the regularity of bureaucracies and the standardization of languages as nation building, as state yeah. building, right? Yeah, customs. And yeah. And I, I think that um, because we went through language uh, standardization, you know, like basically enforced reduction of variety in human language in order to form these nations, like, you know, famously the construction of the French language or whatever, right? Um, it's easier to accept these things as being languages because they 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 tend to share more sort of these sort of like quote unquote formal properties, um, where you know you can say that there is the vernacular, there is dialects, you know all these kinds of things. But like if you want to talk about the French language, you refer to you know the official sanctioned French language uh, or in Japanese you call it like hyojungo is this like synthetic mm. thing that's been created for nation building and so it has a kind of like algorithmic quality to it um, right. but I don't think they're identical I just think that the 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 mediation through bureaucracy and and states encourages the conceptual slippage between these 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 different things yeah yeah you can certainly see where it came from um yeah that's a that's a really good connection um but yeah like um over the next couple of pages like weisenbaum moves on to basically saying like if you have a formal language to it in which to describe a game then you have a machine right like you have an abstract machine these are all the same concept a game a language and a machine are all basically the same thing and he moves on to um, this very, like, coy sort of, like, explanation of the Turing machine without giving it th that name initially. He describes a, a game played with a roll of toilet paper and, you know, black marbles and white marbles and all these rules for, like, moving the marbles around on the toilet paper and whatever the fuck. Um, yeah, and he's, there's a little dice. It's, it's all good fun. But in the end, he kind of... He has, he has this, he, these wonderful illustrations and he has a table of like the state transitions um, and all this good stuff. But like what he then ends up with is that like if you zoom out and you look at what's happening here, this is an adding machine. It is doing addition. You, end, you have a, a situation where you look at like three black marbles, a white marble, and then two black marbles. And then the, the machine state transitions move the the marbles to be together so it makes five and it's like it's addition right like three plus two is five um if you zoom out that far and you understand what the rules are doing um notably there's those kind of levels of interpretation like one could sit there and follow the rules of the game and move the marbles around without ever understanding that it was doing addition 
you'd have to step up a conceptual level to be able to see that. Um, but yeah, this is it's a way of illustrating the Turing machine and algorithm and the role of the agent in playing out these things. And the fact that, you know, you can describe an adding machine as a set of rules, yeah, as a game to be played. Which, I mean, it's it's cool stuff, you know. It's, yeah, it's it kind of cool. comp-sci 101, but it, it is pretty good. Um, well, he, has, he has a little bit of a poetic flair that's usually missing. He does. It is fun to read. Um, it then gets more interesting when it becomes recursive, right? That, like, if you have this way of encoding information on a tape, then you could encode the rules of the game on the tape, you know? And now you've got into, you've got into proper Turing machine kind of territory where you could take the state transition table, turn it into configurations of black and white marbles and put them on the tape and then have a different region of tape. That's the actual number data that you're working on. And then you could shuttle back and forth between the rules and the data and it would become a self-contained system at that point. At that point, the tape would be a program plus its data that it would operate on. Um, yeah, it's a Turing machine. That's Turing shit, you know. And 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 yeah, and as he, as as you says, uh, um, I I am saying then that there exists a Turing machine that operates on a tape containing only ones and zeros, and that is capable of imitating any other Turing machine, whatever. This so-called universal Turing machine is, as are all Turing machines, describable in terms of a set of quintuples of the form we are already familiar, i.e. the current state, the symbol read, the next state, the symbol written, and the direction of tape motion. So if you have that, it's it's you know it's a U machine, right? It's a universal, a universal machine that can emulate or run any other uh, uh, Turing machine. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a game that can play any game. Yeah, one of the greatest triumphs of the human intellect. It is. It's it's incredible stuff. Which which is it's it's nice. Like, can we just appreciate how that coexists with all the dour stuff about uh, programmers later, like? Um, this is the thing, right? Like computation as a kind of mathematical field is is just a fucking miracle. You know, it, it's a wonderful place. And then the actual practice of programming is just pissing things up a fucking wall, doing like ads and and Bitcoin and shit like that. You know what I mean? It's like it, compu computation is wasted on us. You know, <laughs> and 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 it it seems to coincide with like our like i don't know being ground down to the most behaviorist like by like almost biologically like conditioned kind of version of humanity that you could get in a mass society instead of what it could what it obviously could also sustain and you know what our mm -hmm. what we might have been hoping for um yeah, well, because there is the, the the small detail that um, uh, although the Turing machine is an abstract machine and you can uh, instantiate it on toilet paper with rocks, um, it it generally helps to have really big computers to run these machines, and whoever owns the most of them has a lot of social power. <laughs> Absolutely right, um, and it, it's it's a it's a fun thing to be reminded of because like when I when I open my lap, my laptop and I like click on Spotify or whatever, I, I don't think of it as being I have a universal machine and then I 
I make it transform into a Spotify machine temporarily, you know, by by loading the Spotify program. And then later I load I load up Discord and it transforms into a Discord machine. But that, that is what's happening. It's fucking crazy, right? That like the code of those two programs specifies a machine, like a Spotify machine and a Discord machine. And then this universal machine just like mutates into them when it when it like loads the data. It's fucking insane stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's really really fascinating, um, and it's this universality of the, the the computer, right? The the Turing machine, that is its its most alluring and sort of most dangerous aspect, right? That like, it just it's it looks like it can do fucking anything, but it can do what it can do is it can do things it can do procedures that can be realized on Turing machines, so like the universal Turing machine is still not a universal universal machine there are there are programs or there there are there are things that cannot be turingized but if if you if you have an effective procedure a turing machine can carry it out for you that's the that's the universality of it and so if you can play around in the great sandbox of possible effective procedures then you can stay within a, a world in which everything seems possible just so long as you don't go looking outside the sandbox for things that are not in that set of things that are formalizable. And again, formal languages, you know, formal games, things with well-defined state transitions, that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, and like, and then you enter kind of metaphysical place, which, or, or at the very least, in a sort of an epistemological, but also nature of, of the knowability of reality. So a nice intersection between metaphysics and epistemology of- Yeah, it's, you, it's not a far just, jump. You enter this disjunction where either the Turing machine can handle everything or it cannot, like, and whether anything that exists in principle could not be disaggregated into the Turing machine. You know, obviously the Turing machine will never, let's say, you know, it, it, it cannot identify, the halting problem will jam it up, but... It you know, arguably it might be able to algorithmically approximate the ways that humans identify an infinite loop and stop themselves from doing things. So you know, arguably there's like a there's a way in which the whole conversation moves and will continue to move because of the structure of the disagreement. You know, it's a in, there's in staring at this, I eventually saw this undecidable disagreement in intuition and in talking to, you know, people about it, like uh, there is just going to be this version of like, now that this is like introduced, there's just going to be this version of epistemology that believes that all of human reality is fundamentally knowable in that, like in this way. And there, um, there's a group of people that do not think this. Yeah, it's the split described in chapter one, right? That like the the split that Weizenbaum observed in the MIT labs or whatever. He's just like, there's just, there's people who seem to think that literally fucking everything about human beings is formalizable in, in Turing terms. And there's people who don't. And that's, it's just, it's just a, a fundamental split, you know? Um, no, this has really yeah. been impressed on me over like the last, like during the phase where we didn't record, like having a lot of conversations with people about it like this is very much a like you know do you think free will is real kind of deal and so it also mm -hmm. related to you know questions on i, I meant that in terms of a, a category of undecidability but also i should say it has you know it's 
related to behaviorism in general and, you know, the willingness to, like, think about what's in the black box, like... Oh yeah, we just get the the these like three categories of like uh, things that cannot be uh, answered uh, with the Turing machine, right? Uh, things. Right. Sorry, can anything we wish to do be described in terms of an effective procedure? The answer to that question is no. So there's three three uh, types of things that are not possible to describe in terms of an effective procedure. Um, first, there are certain questions that could be asked and for which it can be proved that no answers can be produced by any effective procedure, whatever. We may, for example, be interested in knowing whether some machine we have designed, say our adding machine, will halt once started with a particular data set. It would be convenient if we had a testing machine, which could, for any machine and any data set appropriate to it, tell us whether that machine operating on the given data set would ever halt. No such machine can be built. Um, so that's a limit. Uh, it's a logical limit. Um, then there is uh, effective procedures or algorithms uh, that can be capable of making some calculation in principle, but it would take such a long time to complete it that it's effectively worthless. So this is either a problem of, well, eventually, essentially it's a problem of computational power and there's just like a limited amount of power in the universe. Um, and so there are things that are like simply impossible on those grounds, uh, even, even uh, beyond just like practicalities to like literal impossibility. Um, and then finally we have the, uh, the, uh, procedures realizable by a Turing machine, uh, but whose rules do not include an effective halting rule. So everybody is pretty familiar with these, right? Like it, you you run a program, it doesn't have a halting rule, and then the computer just freezes because it's just doing the rule forever. Um, yeah. And it therefore it never produces an answer because there's no halting rule. Um, it's, it's kind of it's kind of like you're not actually asking anything. You know, like it, 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 it's like the initiation of a consideration, but without any specification of what it is. Yeah, there's there's no return statement at the end. To You just go into an infinite loop and then sit there forever. And it's just a black box that gets warmer over time. Yeah. yeah and there's there's just an obvious like human. It's not the same as a human running the Turing halting problem, like, like the, the Turing like it's not like if you know a human behaves as a Turing machine and runs the halting problem, they can overcome it. They, we just have like other stuff going on, so that we can mm -hmm. see around the formal process. Like, and uh, yeah, probably probably all the stuff I was saying before should have come after Kyle reading all all that oh, about the halting problem because <clears throat> that like Weizenbaum is is of course saying no, like don't be stupid, like come on, um, but you know. In practice, in conversations, I, I, most people collapse all of these categories into the second that, like, listen, we just don't have the power yet. Like, once we have the power, everything else will melt away. Well, not the formal logical fallacies, but the ways that humans are able to, uh, like, get beyond that sort of, like, like, the human heuristics will be quantifiable and decomposable. There's a... Yeah, like, I mean this is this is why when beer talks about this issue he he says like look you know even if in principle we could reduce everything to the second one 
there's a limited amount of energy in the universe and therefore like there are hard limits even to this in principle problem like like no matter how much efficiency and energy capture you're able to do like there are many things that are simply beyond calculation Yeah. yeah It um it kind of comes down to this this question that he calls out very explicitly, like, are all decision making processes that humans employ reducible to effective procedures and hence amenable to machine computation? Are all of them? No. There we go. Well, I like I I think I think ethical intuitions are just like it's if you've ever witnessed analytical philosophy, it's like you can see that there's been a you know some sort of category error. Not not that people shouldn't try to logically kind of think about. There and intuition pumps and all that stuff that all is you know like helped me clarify a few things but like you just have intuitions and like you can kind of reason with yourself about it but you you, you have them mm-hmm. yeah um Weissenbaum talks a bit about like the, the 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 kind of downfall of some of these things that like yeah um uh like formal languages have this property of being able to kind of apply these like um syntactic transformations but like natural language doesn't have that you know like the you you are dealing with not just like data structures but you're dealing with meaning and value and such like in in kind of natural language um and you know he's he's just kind of trying to highlight the problems of like hey look there's this stuff that's not amenable to formal formal language and formal systems um and you, you there's there's so much going on in humanity that you can't apply blind transformation rules to like it's just if you do that, you just do violence to the thing and you mangle it, you know? I think he uses some kind of some kind of example of, like, a novel that's written in such a way that, like, the, it's a mystery murder detective novel or something, and it hinges on the, the gender of somebody and, like, some ambiguous statement that's made about them or whatever, and it's like, you, you can't just apply a transformation rule to that text and then have still preserve the fact of it being, like, a, a mystery with a good good reveal and a resolution and all that kind of stuff. Like, it would it would actually mangle the content to apply a kind of um, algebraic transformation to the text. Yeah, for me, this comes in when thinking about, you know, if we're thinking about a bureaucracy as a machine, then, you know, the bureaucratic uh, maintenance of the revolution. Like... This is one of those, the reason why people like positivism in those elements is that we can just kind of bracket out that whole level of meaning that's lost in in the preservation of all these, you know, aesthetic and like power, like processes, like you're you're replicating all this stuff, but clearly something is lost in the institutionalization of of a revolution that coincides with the dying down of the popular upsurge. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the state slogan in Connecticut is still revolutionary. Like, you know, the revolution from like the the 1770s, whatever, like, um, yeah, like the, the, the meaning is lost in machines over time. Like, that's like, that's why there is these like a fetish for the, you know, kind of these big moments where people come in and like there's mass energy and when you see that mass energy dwindle away the symbols lose their meaning like there's just whole levels of human reality that can't be captured if you don't appreciate the difference Mm -hmm. between you know algorithmic content or algorithmic structure algorithmic logical like processing and meaning like which i guess comes naturally to people that are swept up in history and less 
because the whole the whole thing is how do you how do you like encode this in the record like that's the whole, that's the historian's big question and you know how, and to some degree social scientists are will often not ask the question you know even though they should like mm. whereas if you're if you're like a proper stem person i don't know maybe it just doesn't occur to you the same way yeah um the last couple of pages are kind of interesting up in this chapter like um he's still hung up on this kind of thing of like can human decision making processes be described unambiguously and even in in natural language and in, in some cases yes like if we have like shared vocabularies and highly um conventionalized contexts and like very narrow kind of technical language then we can have these these kind of um shared understandings and like formalize things like i guess uh, legalese is an example yeah like how 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 to prepare and serve a hamburger at mcdonald's right totally and that still that relies on the agent kind of being inducted into a world of shared understanding to be able to interpret the vocabulary correctly um which these these um i get you know it's it's for this variety engineering thing of like having these highly standardized vocabularies that restrict the context and enable us to to talk about things in this way um He's, he's a he's a super interesting kind of like little line here then i think at the bottom of page 71 he says after all since we are all since we can all learn to imitate universal turing machines we are by definition universal turing machines ourselves that is we are at least universal turing machines which is a very interesting little admission yeah but it's it, he's he's right like, we, we were at least that that's the well, it's a crucial admission because you know whenever you get into one of these Whenever you get one of these arguments, people are like, what, you think you're not a machine? You're a machine, you know? Like, well, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Like, sure. Like, period. Like, case closed. Like, if, if I algorithmically tried to solve the halting problem, I wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. Like. Um, <laughs> and then there's this, he brings in uh, Polanyi um, saying that we, we know more than we can tell. And this seems to be one of these really crucial kind of tripping points, right? That, like even if we know something and we can perform it and stuff, we might not be able to tell the computer in an effective procedure how to do it. And even with large language models and stuff, which is kind of getting closer to that, being able to tell it what to do, it's still not there, right? Like, it still doesn't have the shared understanding. It, it won't be able to flip a burger at McDonald's because it's not an agent that can be inducted into this shared understanding and be told in these kind of, these terms, really. Um... And that, that's one of these really crucial problems, right? Like, we, we can know, but can we tell how to do it? How to, how to, how to do this stuff? Um, yeah, and then there's also, like, ineffable things. Like, we can sort of know, but not fully know, and also can't tell. Uh, I've had this experience, like, in meditation. Like, the other day I was doing meditation, and... I was trying to articulate something and it was like I would I would I would have sentences that would come to mind but there were words in the sentences like the sentences would have a grammar and there were words in the sentences that weren't words they were like how would I describe it like pictures and sounds and emotions but there was no word for them 
and but they still fit into a sentence structure as a like object um so that was that was kind of yeah that's that's sort of like the ineffable right um yeah know of it but not know it yeah it it, it i think in, in my brain it kind of manifests as often like it's um yeah there's 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 clear words there's that and then the did the it's just these textures that 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 kind of take the place of words right yeah 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 Absolutely, which is, I think, probably universal experience, but it's it is weird. But then it's again this weird thing of like something you know but you can't really tell. I, we could probably have this conversation for hours, and I don't think we'd really get anywhere with like really having a certainty that we have exactly the same experience of these things. It is it's ineffable, you know? Yeah, and and it's 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 not exactly even knowledge because like you don't. You can't capture it. You can't necessarily recall it. You don't know it in detail. Like it's 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 very fuzzy uh, as just experience uh, without um, depth of knowing. But uh, yeah, no, I, I was thinking about how this like this level of the uh, in, like ineffable kind of incommensurate differences between people and like you know stuff that's either in like just rationally undecidable, which means a truly rational, like a, 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 an actually rational humanist wouldn't have like a strident enlightenment, like defense of their side. They would more or less kind of have to open themselves up to indeterminacy. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and just, you know, taking that step in rationalism where you're like, okay, people are not going to like, just convince each other, except you know, unless there's something like the Big Bang that, that changes a metaphysical debate. But even then, it just changes the metaphysical debate. Um, it doesn't it doesn't get rid of it. It just shifts the just shifts around because there's just a stable disagreement. So there's that level. And then there's the level of like. It's actually really hard to reconstruct almost everything that humans care about, which is, again, uh, what you know? What makes it really hard to lose somebody is that you don't just you can't just upload them. Like you can't upload all this cool stuff and like, and why the, you know, as as much as I want there to be like data stream transporters or something, like there you know this sort of is a a, a fantasy of like preserving people as if they're data and I, it just it it just I don't know categorically, it's it, it's got me like. It's got me. I, I, I'm really in like a different headspace and like, and unfortunately, like when I talk to people about this, they're like, well, you, what you're saying is like in the same level of like, like the unknowability of God or something. It sounds really mystical. And it's like, you can't really argue that it's not like there is just like this level of you can't know it. That's all mysticism is, is saying you can't really like know something. <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, you can have an experience of something without really knowing it. Yeah. Yeah. And it like it wasn't until like getting familiar with mathematical standards of argument that I really thought about like, well, you, you know, you can actually sometimes prove that, you know, you, you, that you can't do something and you can. And yes, like there are. Yeah, I don't know. It puts puts all of the other disciplines in perspective to have that standard, to have a rationalistic conjecture standard like Oh, so a lot of other rational disciplines essentially lack this, but really want to be math. Like, and so, yeah, getting a sense of where these things, like, this is what analytical philosophy pretends to teach people, but it doesn't. It doesn't really do that. 
Like, I took analytical philosophy. I didn't learn this until I was, you know, studying math proofs. I don't know why. Right. Yeah, interesting. Nice. Yeah. 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 You, you mean stuff like the, um, like, like the halting problem, like Gödel's incompleteness, like where you just, you have a, you have a proof that this is actually unknowable. This can't be done. Well, that and just the, the, I feel like this is based on nothing, but I feel like the, the level of mathematicians that feel like that everything is reducible to math versus the level of like analytical philosophers that think everything is reducible to algorithms, data, math, mathematical objects, like mathematicians probably think it less just be, like maybe like half of them i don't know like mm. maybe, or, or rather than you know a majority like a, a significant majority where it's just, and a lot of the logical encoding kind of sides of analytical philosophy with the exception of pragmatists that do not you know that that are essentially a counter analytic tradition but are usually yeah. like sort of I don't know. Like, they're still highly influenced. It's more like a post-analytic tradition. They're highly influenced by the analyticals, but the, they, ha they have to argue on their turf with, like, with pragmatic arguments or whatever. Like, so, like, American pragmatists is what I'm thinking of. Um, yep. Like, yeah, I guess, I don't know, aside from that. Anyway, big philosophical speedball. Like, but I love that this book is, like, touches on this stuff and gets me to, like, reconsider why you know i don't know as you get old you start to look at like the concept of god differently even if like you've been an atheist like you just start thinking about like yeah but isn't there something like some kind of like how do you how would i know you can't know like my, my cultural conceptions of god are, are definitely wrong like that's that's what the well that, know, that's what's very they, we've known yeah, that for that's, like 100 that's years very like, frustrating about conversations about god is that like the term is very loaded in a way that makes you want to be an atheist because it's like come on like this is well, it's, silly like, it's like a rational it's it's a rationalist like it's like a trap where it's like the whole thing is suit is this pan to irrationality so fuck that but then when you really think about it there's no data listening to General Inspectinet. While you wait for the next episode, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. You can find us on Facebook and all the podcast apps. If you'd like to support the show, get access to our community Discord and help keep the lights on, then go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit and give us a couple of bucks a month. Every contribution is greatly appreciated. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows such as Swampside Chats, From Alpha to Omega, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Mortal Science. They're excellent shows and excellent folks. As always, thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope you'll join us again next time.